I'd love it if you would turn in your Bible to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. So in uh, the last lesson, we were talking about submission. And uh, I didn't want to blow through and, and do too quickly chapter 4. So today we're going to do the tail end of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5 and then finish chapter 5 off next week. I've entitled this lesson uh, this week, Two Flashing Warning Lights. Two Flashing Warning Lights. There are two things that James is going to get very, very practical about and urge us to pay attention to. Time and money. Um, I don't know how you are with flashing lights in your car. Are you very sensitive to that? Or are you more like me, totally ignore them until you absolutely have to? So the idiot lights, that's what we call those things in our cars, you know. The one that comes on and says, um, it starts, at least in my car, it starts with a little, uh, how does it say it? Um, uh, fuel, just fuel comes on in a, in a color on my, on my screen. And if I ignore that, then it starts flashing. And then if I ignore that, it comes on and says something about uh, needing gas. It doesn't say gas. It doesn't say fuel. It says some other word. There's like four, you know, little nice whatevers. What I need is an idiot light that actually has a voice with it that comes on and says something like this. You have exactly three blocks till you run out of gas. I don't know why I am a run-it-to-the-last-possible sniff of gasoline, but I am that way. Idiot lights don't work for me, and in, in life, I'm suspicioning that for many of us, idiot lights don't work for us either. God provides them by his precious Holy Spirit. He has them flashing in our face to say, hey, watch out for this, hey, stop that, hey, start this, and too many of us just kind of ignore them. Um, I wanted to, to give a little uh, side note before we get into those two warning lights specifically and talk about uh, chapter divisions because we're jumping in the middle of chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 13 and, and just remind you that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions were not part of the regular canon of Scripture. They were not there when they were written. Uh, those were added somewhere in the Middle Ages. Uh, many stories abound as to who actually did it. The historians will tell us a guy by the name of Stephen Langton is the one who did the chapter divisions. And when he went to print a Bible, he was working on the, on the, uh, the division with the, the verses as well. By the time they got to the Geneva Bible, which was in the 1500s, they had those divisions in place. But they're not from God. They're, somebody made it a, as an easier way to print a document. So when you're reading your Bible and you come to what you think is a, an artificial division, keep going. Just because there's a little break there, just because it has a, a, a chapter name or number next to it or a verse number next to it, the thought may continue. And in this case, I, I think that's exactly what happens. I think there are two prevailing thoughts here that get lumped together even though there's a, a chapter division in between. The other thing I wanted to, to, to give you as background to this chapter or to the section, is that when we see most of the history in the Bible, through most of the history in the Bible, the people that we see are agriculturally bound. They make their living off the land. Uh, they're either farmers or, or they're, uh, you know, um, keepers of uh, primarily sheep. 
they're not merchants. They're not traveling around with, with uh, items that they sell. There is a shift, however, when we get into the New Testament, and especially in the book of Acts, you can see it starting to happen. The, inter the exchange with the Jewish people is now not just with, with people who are farmers or those that, that, that care for animals. There starts to be another class of people. And James is going to directly address merchants, really for the first time in the New Testament in this particular passage. They've become merchants, they've become bankers, and he's got some very practical comments to them as, as the Jewish people kind of expand into that part of society. Now there is an overall theme. If we, if we looked at the whole book of James and we had to, had to capture the whole book with one word, it would probably be the word humility. James is wanting in a very practical way to drive home the importance of humility. The, the, the humility as it relates to all kinds of things. And in our text today, it's, it's humility, it's the lack of humility as to someone's use of time and money. That there's an arrogant use to time and an arrogant use to money and it needs to stop. And boy, if there was a message that South County needs, it is this one. Because we are very arrogant about our, our time. We think we're gonna live forever. We, we are indiscriminate about our time. We are not careful about our time. We are not intentional about the use of our time. And as it relates to finances, it has a tremendous focus, which shows a lot of, of arrogance uh, in, in many ways. So let's jump in to chapter 4 and verse number 13. He says, now listen. Now listen. Let me just uh, make sure that we are... Now listen, he says, today or tomorrow, we will go uh, to this or that city. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to carry on business and we're going to make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the, the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go and do this and do that. He's, he's making a point about time. Uh, as I was writing the lesson, I decided to take a moment and just remind you of, of the Jewish mindset about time. They did not start their day at sunrise. They started their day at sunset which, by the way, I think is a, a classically wonderful good idea. I am not a morning person. I am much better in the late afternoon. Good time to start our day. And those of you that wonder if that is a biblical concept, if you go to the book of Genesis, when Jesus or when God was doing the creating, what did he say? And the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning. Not the morning and the evening. So forget this early morning stuff. Anyway. The Jewish accounting of time started at sunset. It was a 24-hour day, and it was divided into two sections, daytime and nighttime. Nighttime had watches, so they called them watches rather than, than hours. And so I put in your notes what those watches were. If you looked at Mark 13, you can see Jesus making references to the watches of the night. It's sundown to 9, or 9 p.m., rather, that's the first watch. Second watch is 9 p.m. to midnight. Third watch is midnight to 3 a.m. The last watch is 3 a.m. to sunrise. You, you'll see that as, a, as an indicator in the stories in the book of, 
in the books of the Gospels, when Jesus is doing ministry, he might make a reference to the third watch or the second watch or the fourth watch. That's how, he's, how, how they kept time at night. During the daytime, they had full 12 hours. And each hour was, you know, starting with dawn. So the dawn till 8 o'clock in the morning was the first hour. Third hour then would be the, the uh, 9 to 10 and so on and so on. I also made a note in your notes just for your edification. There is a reference to the fact that a good Jewish person is going to pray three times a day. And three hours of prayer specifically indicated. And they would have been the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. And so if you were wanting to, for example, use Daniel as a, as a guide, as a role model, how many times did Daniel pray? He prayed three times a day. You could organize your day around three specific times of prayer if you wanted to, and those are the times that you would use. In a general sense, then, the Jewish sense or a metaphor for the span of life, how long do you get, they used all kinds of interesting terms, terms like a declining shadow. Just as the sun goes down, the shadow is really bright and specific and large, but it goes away. Um, a whiff, a whiff of a breath, um, a cloud. Job uses that in, in, uh, in Job. Or a wildflower that, that springs up, it's there for a little while, and then it goes away. Well, James is using a similar kind of metaphor to talk about the, the span of life, how much we get. And he uses the term mist. Or if you were looking at a King James Bible, you would see the word vapor. Your life is but a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanishes away. Now, is that the mindset that you and I receive in, in our current world? Do we have a sense that life is short and valuable and needs to be invested? Or do we have a message of we're going to live forever and if you eat right, you're going to live forever plus forever? That, that's not so. Yes, eating right and, and caring and being a good steward of your body might ex extend some life uh, expectancy, but the bottom line is it's a vapor. It appears for a little while and then it goes away. Um, I, I, a year and a half ago or so, I don't know how many of you remember, remember I don't remember what we were studying at that point, but I, I took your attention to a passage uh, that I'm going to talk about in a minute in Psalm 90 about teach us to number our days. And I went to the actuary tables, and based on my, do you remember this? And, and I figured out how many days, based on those actuary tables, I had left in life. So on January the 14th, in the year 2020, I had 4,015 days left. Well, as of today, I'm down to 3,517 left. And you laugh and you say, well, that's your silly. That's not a good way to think about it. But wait a minute. Even though that is not an exact science, and I grant you that, God is the taker and giver of life, but to look at life as a limited commodity, as a precious limited commodity, if we, if we had that perspective, wouldn't it change our lives? The way we interact with our families, the way, the way we would choose things we're going to pursue and do, and with whom? And, and I think that's what... what uh, what James is getting, getting at here, and in a very practical way, he's asserting primarily that we're not in control. He said, how dare you get up and say, on such and such a day, I'm going to go here, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to sell this product, and I'm going to have this, and I'm going to do that. How dare you do that? Are you in control of your life? All you need is a, is a fender bender, the sound of that crunching plastic and metal 
to remind you that you're not in control. How upset, how vulnerable we feel after a, 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 a car accident or some other health scare, some other, oh my goodness, when I had my little, you know, lights out, lost four hours or whatever a few weeks ago. You know, the next few days I kept going, geez, what if that was permanent? What, what, whoa, I, I should be valuing. I, I, I had a sense of vulnerability that's not an everyday kind of thing. This is a good thing. James is saying, wait a minute, how arrogant of you to think you control it. You don't have endless days with your children. You don't have endless days with your spouse. You don't have endless days with your friends. You don't have endless days on this earth. You have an eternity, but we're not in control of it. We can't say, well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this. We need to say, well, if the Lord's in it, we're going to, we're going to go to Hawaii. If the Lord's in it, we're going camping. If the, Lord, if the Lord's in it, we're going to da 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 If the Lord's in it, I'm going to start this business. If the Lord's in it, I'm going to be around to see my kids grow up. There, the, the tagline, if it's God's will, it shouldn't be used as a tagline, but it should be used as a mental If God's in it, then it will happen. If he's not, if it's not his will, it ain't going to happen. I don't care how much we want it. God is in control. I put two verses down in your notes. The first one was in Acts 18, verse 21. Paul says, you know, to, to the church at, at Ephesus, I'm going to come back if it's God's will. He wanted to come back. It was his plan to come back. He wanted to encourage them that he was going to come back, but he, but he added the, the clear perspective, if it's the Lord's will. And in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 19, to the church at Corinth, he says, a similar will come to you very soon if the Lord wills. Nothing wrong with making plans, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but those plans have to be conditional. I'm not in charge. I got some plans. These are some things we're thinking about doing. This is, this is the direction I'm going. This is a business I might want to start. This is a marriage I might want to make. These are some kids that I'd like to see grow up, etc., etc., etc. But ultimately, I'm not in control. We don't like to not be in control, or at least I'll speak for myself. I do not like to not be in control, which is why when it gets bumpy, I get nervous on an airplane. I always want to call the stewardess or the flight attendant. You can tell my me if the pilot needs me I'm right here I don't sleep on airplanes just in case he needs me you know which is funny I slept going and coming back both times on the plane I just laid my head back and went to sleep for an hour it's like unheard of but we're not in control James is trying to get us to say wait a minute yeah I'd like to do that I'd like to go there and have that business uh, encounter yeah I'd but only if the Lord's uh, it, only if it's the Lord's will. The second thing we can see out of James and out of that passage is that God is sovereign and he is controlling our world. We dare not be arrogant about the whole thing. I, I don't know if you've seen this story, but I want to take you to it. Daniel chapter 4. Go in your Old Testament, find the book of Daniel in the prophet section, and uh, after Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel, and find Daniel chapter 4. There is the coolest story. And those of you that have young children, this is a fabulous dinnertime story to tell. So Nebuchadnezzar is the big king, and he is full of himself in every regard. Daniel chapter 4. And he has a dream. 
and it's a you know a, 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 a unnerving dream, and he and he wants he wants somebody to interpret the dream, and the the, the messengers around him the the. Chaldeans, the encanters, the magicians, they're all having trouble doing it. So Daniel says, yeah, I, I, can, I can interpret that dream. And Daniel knows this is not a good deal. It's not a great moment. But he, he says, yeah, I can interpret it. And he says in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 4, here's the interpretation. Uh, Your majesty, this is the decree the Most High, God Almighty, has issued against you. You will be driven away from people. And you're going to live with the wild animals. You're going to eat grass like the ox, and you're going to be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you, meaning seven years, until you acknowledge that the Most High, that God Almighty, is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when, and I have this underlined in my Bible, when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Guys, this is, this is an applicable story to our very lives. God does what he pleases. Verse 35 says, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. We like to think we're all that in a bag of chips, and we're not. He is sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar, the, the fulfillment came to pass for seven years, he, he was turned out into the fields. He ate the grass. He snorted as if he was an animal. He did all the things that the dream outlined and, and greatly humbled was great. And his arrogance was gone. And finally, he was allowed to come back and rule in his nation. The, the, the overall theme to the book of James is humility. And he's he's focusing in on it right now as it relates to time, but it relates to the whole scope of our lives. We are not in charge. God is. When we think we are, we're on dangerous ground. The third thing that I think is showing us in the early part of, of this passage in chapter uh, 4 of James, the latter part there, is that we have to then develop a life, a life perspective that is a life of reliance and a life of dependence, not independence. Now, I, I grant you there is a place for a sense of independence, an ability to have some confidence about yourself, to, to be able to risk some things and move forward. I grant you that. All of us want to see that in our children. We want to see it in our own lives. We want to see it in our friendships. We, want to, we don't want to see people confidently engaging in life to an extent. At some point, the person's got to put up a, a timeout sign and say, but it's up to God. I'm in here, I'm there, I'm doing this, I'm learning that, I'm trying this, I'm, I'm stretching and growing. Yes, all good things. But at some point, we have to have a life of reliance. We have to get up in the morning and say, Lord, I, I had this in mind. We're thinking about doing this as a family. I was thinking about doing this professionally. What do you think? There's a reliance. Lord, shut some doors. If this is not a good idea, slam them shut. Make it clear. We're not supposed to go there, and then we're not going. Just before we left for Hawaii, there was a couple other little things that happened. Barb says to me, are you sure we're not getting some signal here that we ain't supposed to go? It was a big laugh. I said, well, I, I've been praying about it. You've been praying about it, blah, 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 blah. There's a reliance on my part. If he slams it shut, I mean, if we get to the airport and blah, 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 blah happens, get in the car and come home. I mean... 
I'm not in charge. I like to think I am, but I'm not. Our perspective has to be what I put in your notes in Psalm 90, verse number 12. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Time is free, but it is priceless. Um, every now and then I like to think through that, uh, the, the, uh, the number thing, how many days you got left is one way. Here's another way. Um, in a book called Time for God, there was a mathematical calculation done. And it, and it took a lifetime and said a lifetime was three score and 10, which would be uh, 70 years. And then they took a clock and said, okay, from seven o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night, how would those years you know, extrapolate onto a, a using a clock? So if your age was 15, the time on the clock would be 10.25 in the morning. Okay. If you're, if you're 25, the time on the clock is 12.42. And we're running to, you know, 11 o'clock at night. So that's pretty good. Some of you are 30. The time is 151. It's good. Uh, 40, uh, the time on the clock is 408. 50, it's 625. See a pattern here? 60, the time is 842. And if you're 70, I'm raising my hand, the time is just before 11 o'clock. You say, well, that's not very uplifting. No. It isn't, but it is a perspective giver. How are we going to use this limited resource? It's not limitless. Our culture wants to think it's limitless. It is not. And I think what's going on here with, with James is just that we are supposed to develop a life of reliance and dependence and have that attitude of, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom to cherish every single day. The good ones, the not so good ones, the challenging ones, the really sweet ones. All right, let's go to the second portion of, of this warning light lesson in chapter five now. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Second warning light flashing James is in our face about is as our wanting to do personal advancement without God. The first one was, you know, the idea that we're misusing time, we're not valuing time, we're planning without God. But now he's saying, wait a minute, this personal advancement, this dealing with wealth, you're doing it without God. Don't do that. So I, I decided to take just a moment out of the text and talk a little bit about what does the Bible have to say about money. And I know that in church, for example, if your pastor decides to teach on money, or tithing or giving or something, everybody gets nervous. Don't get nervous, I'm not nervous. I, this is one of my favorite topics to speak on, so don't get nervous. And, and, and if you are convicted at any point, that's your problem, not mine. I, I, it's the truth. 
So let's look at what the Bible has to say about money. Well, first off, wealth is not, 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 underline not, a sign of God's favor. Our culture likes to think if somebody's got something, oh, God is really blessing them. Look, God is good all the time. My favorite line is, it's just sometimes he's gooder. It's not biblical, but it's just my own mindset. He's good all the time. He's good when you got a little, and he's good when you He's good when things are great, and he's good when things are not so great. He's good when you're healthy, and he's good when you're not healthy. Wealth is not a sign of God's favor. He, he that is God, and certainly in the ministry of Jesus, he had lots of people in his life that, that, that were rich. And, 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 and there was no indication that having the money was a problem. The problem is the pursuit of money. Having it is not the issue. If you have some resources, great. What are you doing with them? The problem is you're supposed to have the resources. The issue is how are you using them? 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's look at this verse. You're, you're in James. Just go left a couple of pages. You'll get to 1 Timothy. And look at chapter 6, verse number 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not the having of money. The love of money. If money to you is just a resource, easy come, easy go, great. But if your pursuit of it is all-encompassing, therein lies the problem. And it's not a sign of God's favor. Have it, don't have it, have a little, have it not. Next week, don't get it. Next week, get blessed with it. It's not a sign of God's favor. Secondly, God does not promise, and certainly it's not in the Bible, that wealth is, is a promise to God's kids. Now, lots and lots of people use Jeremiah 29, 11 as, as, a, as a prosperity kind of passage. Let me read it to you. Jeremiah 29, 11. Lots of you have it hanging on their doors or walls at home, uh, maybe even memorized. But it is one of those misused verses in our Bible. Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. And people will say, see, see, he's going to prosper us. And we translate that into a financial context. That word prosper does not mean money. It means things like peace and, and contentment and a feeling of, of, of completeness or safety. Which would you rather have, health or money? Happy kids or money? A great marriage or money? Come on, this is an easy quiz. Money's going to be the last thing on all of those lists. God doesn't promise wealth for his kids. There is no financial hung out there as, a, as an indicator of God's blessing. In fact, there are many people in our Bible, just like there are many that had resources, there are many that did not. And God's blessing is, is extreme in their lives. Thirdly, if there is wealth, it has to be used just like any other gift from God. It's, it's, a, it's meant to be invested. It's meant to be put in circulation as part of your service. If you have resources, use them. If you have time, use it for the glory of God. If you have physical health, use it for the glory of God. If you have financial resources, use it for the glory of God. Is there anything wrong with doing some things for yourself along the way? No, having just come back from Hawaii vacation. But you know what? I could have just as easily 
sent a friend of mine on that trip. Because I know that those resources are not mine. They were gifts. They need to be investing. You know, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, he, he that is Jesus, talks about how he gave one guy ten talents. And it's not talents like skills and abilities. It's like coins, talents, you know, uh, quarters, nickels, dimes, bigger ones. Um, he says, he says to the one, I'm going to give you this many coins. I want you to use it. He uses it. Guy comes back and says, great. He gives another guy five coins, and he uses it. Great. When I come back, I saw you it was in, in, in play. He gave one guy one. That was all that he could handle, apparently. And he buried it. He didn't use it. And God says, give me that back. I'm going to give it to the guy that had ten. The purpose of having resources is to be able to use them. Uh, in in uh, Luke chapter 6, it talks about giving to everyone who asks of you. And that ought to be the mindset of your, of your life. You come across a need, you participate. Now, maybe at that moment you can't participate very much. Maybe at another moment you could participate a whole lot. Cool. It has nothing to do with the dollar amount. The level isn't the issue. The issue is the heart. Last thing I said about money here is that we have to be careful about pursuing money. A focus on gathering wealth is dangerous. Absolutely dangerous. Remember the, the story of the rich young, your, your rich young man that comes and says, I've done all these things for you, Lord. And he says, okay, go ahead and sell everything you got and, and, and you'll be good. And he boxed. He was focused on his money, on his wealth, what he had, what he had amassed. You, you can't serve God and money, Luke 16 says. And, and Matthew 16 says, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, he gets all of the resources, and he loses his own soul? Your kid goes off to the college of your choice, works at the accounting big four, amasses wealth, you know, lives in a bigger house than you could ever think of. You, you, if you were of our world, you would say, oh, I was successful. I launched my kid. I, look at them flourish. But if their, their life is not centered around Christ, it's of no value. A great education, a great way to live, a great, a, a great work, a great uh, experiences and opportunities, travel and all the rest. What is it, what is it value if you lose your soul? If our kids lose their souls in the pursuit of it, they can't see that as an example. They've got to see other things as more important. Again, nothing wrong with having resources. The issue is the focus, the pursuit. Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5, I put them in your notes. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my car while I drive around South County. Do not wear yourself out trying to get rich. Do not wear yourself out trying to get rich. But have the wisdom to show some restraint. Cast but a glance. Yeah, it's there. It's nice. When we got it, wonderful. When we don't, we don't. And they are gone, for they will surely sprout the sky like an eagle. Easy come, easy go. Thank you, Lord, for what we got. Can we invest it? Can we use it? Can we do some things with the family and the kids? Great. Don't have it? It's okay. All right. That was a little excursious. Let's go back to the text. With those biblical ideas in mind, James is definitely giving a warning 
to the rich merchants who were, who were cherishing their money. Um, back to James chapter 5, he says, Listen, you rich people, it's time for you to weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Weeping and wailing. He says, you know what, you ought to show some very deep distress about your misplaced confidence. Judgment's going to come, and you're going to be miserable. You, you know, you, you, have, you have hoarded wealth, and, and there is a bad thing that comes from that. You should be weeping and howling. You should be dispersing it to the best of your ability, investing it in God's business and God's ministries and, and things of the like. He says in verses 2 and 3, well, Your wealth is rotted. The moths have come and eaten your clothes. Gold and silver are corroded. The three things that, that wealth generally came from during that time, and even to an extent during our time, were things like food. If you had, you had a lot, so you were very successful, uh, like the illustration in Luke 12 of the guy who has such a, a response to his harvest that he's got to build more barns, bigger barns, more barns, more barns. Um, when wealth comes from food, that would be one, one example. Wealth from garments. You remember Paul said that he didn't want to covet anybody else's silver and gold and, and clothing. If you had really nice outer garments, you were on the top of society during that. Precious metals back then and now. Uh, uh, gems and, and uh, gold and silver were of high value. He's saying, you know, putting your thoughts, your intentions, your focus on the, on the, on the gathering of these things is dumb because wealth is going to rot, moths are going to eat your clothes, your gold and silver are going to get corroded. In one sense or another, they're not going to have their, their same value. I mean, think about, think about 2008. Everybody had all their money invested in this, that, and the other thing. And over a, what, six-month period of time, down it went. Right now, the stock market is really, really good. But if you read any articles, it says, look out, there's a, a, an adjustment. I love that word. An adjustment coming. Okay. He, that's why, why James is saying, wait a minute, be careful. And then he accuses them of four specific sins. This is a, an incriminating section. The first thing he, he suggests is that you... You failed to pay your workers. There was, there was injustice. Along the way of amassing these resources, there was injustice. Um, I found a verse in Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 13. It says, Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back wages of a hired man overnight. In other words, back then, they put in a day's worth of work, and before they went home, you had to pay them. Otherwise, they had nothing to eat. And, and could not afford a cloak to cover themselves. It was very one-to-one. -one. You work today, you get paid. James is saying, hey, we're, we're going to be held accountable for the way we amass our own resources. Were we fair with everyone around us? Did we take into consideration the people that were working for us? You know, are, are we generous with the guy that mows our lawn? Or, or, or the gal that cleans our house? Is, do they have to come and nag us to, to get a little extra? What, what about the people that we know that are, that, are, that are the working poor, that are killing themselves with maybe two jobs and still can't cut the mustard? Their kids can't go to camp. The other day, I heard about a family in our, in our church, and uh, the, there's been some challenges with the kids, and they've agreed to go to camp. 
Well, as soon as the lady told me they agreed to go to camp, I was on my, my, my uh, email to the gal at church and said, uh, I wanna, I'm going to come in. I want to I wanna cover the kids' costs for, for camp. So I went into church the next day. I was there for another reason. I walked into this person. I had my checkbook out. I was ready. Barb had written a check, too. I had two checks, actually. I walked in. I said, hey, I, I want to cover da 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 And she goes, too late. You're in a long line in front of you. I said, you're kidding me. She said, no. There have been da 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 she says, as a matter of fact, she held up this stack. She said, here's all the kids that want to go to camp. And she held up a bigger stack. Here's all the people that have been in paying for them. Don't you love that? I mean, you know, maybe these are folks of my age that know the value that camp can have in a, in a young person's life. And, and just want to make sure that the, the folks at camp is what? $900. The working poor can't afford that. Two, three kids go to camp, $3,000. It's not going to happen. But they were all getting paid for, and, and I said, well, fine, use mine for somebody. She said, well, let me figure out who. I said, I don't care. When, when, we, when we're with a mindset of paying people accurately, it affects everything. It affects the way we, we pay for services rendered to us in our business relationships, how we pay for things, how we respect people about their money. The whole thing is involved in that. Then the second thing he talks to them about is that they're, they're giving themselves over to pleasure. Uh, the, the translation that I have is the cries, let me read it here. Uh, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Luxury and self-indulgence. You know, there's, there's a, the endless pursuit of, of more for me. I had a, a friend years ago that almost always when there was time for prayer would pray that God would provide for her family. And, and, and it always bothered me. We just need more income. We need more income. We need more income. And finally I said to her, what, what is that number? You know, practical me. What, what is that number that, that you're going to feel comfortable with? When, when your family has that much income, what, what is that number? And she couldn't give me a number. And I walked away thinking, it's always going to be $1 more. It's always going to be another dollar. Think about you in your lifetime, what you were able to do when you were 15, 20 years old. How much money did you have? I laugh about this all the time in my own personal life. At age 20, how many nickels did I have? None. What, did I get by? Did I eat regularly? Did I travel? Did I get to see friends? Did I have a wonderful life? Yes. What about 30? A few more dollars. 40, a few more dollars, etc., etc. My point being is that we need to make certain to not give ourselves over to pleasure. Nothing wrong with having some if everything's in balance. If we're giving regularly in all the right ways, if our, our radar is up for a need, if we're looking for a family or a kid or a situation and we're generous about it, perfect. Go to Hawaii. But if it's all on the consuming, what I and mine and we and us, Really, all we're doing is giving ourselves over to pleasure, and that's very dangerous. The warning lights are going off. He says, you're fattening yourself up for the day of slaughter. What a picture. It's like Thanksgiving, you know? You just can't eat enough, and you stop for a couple hours, and you go back and do it again. You're fattening yourself up for the slaughter. That's the picture he's, he's bringing to mind. Is this the way you want to eat, or the way you want your life to be lived? And then, he, and then he throws in right there at the end that there's some physical violence against the righteous. Uh, you have 
You have condemned and murdered the innocent one in reference to Jesus, who was not opposing you. At the end of the day, you were so consumed with yourself, you weren't paying attention to the fact that Jesus came and walked the earth. So what is James trying to get across? What are those flashing warning lights trying to tell us? Well, first off, we need to recognize that planning is a good thing, but we can't boast about those assumptions. Planning is a good thing. In Luke 14, it talks about it, you, no one's going to build a building or a tower without, without uh, uh, making plans and, and being careful about it. You know, you're, you're, going to, you're going to be considerate about what are the next steps. Even Paul in Romans 15 was talking about how he really wanted to go to Spain and, and, and take the gospel there. He said, I'm planning to go, but I don't know. You know, it's up to God. I, I've got some plans. And Proverbs chapter 6 talks about you and I ought to look at the ant and, and take notes of how the ant lives their life. There's nothing wrong with planning and being careful. There's nothing wrong with 401ks and, and savings accounts and that sort of thing. The issue, though, is we have to submit all those plans to the Lord. Easy come, easy go. I put down Acts 17, verse 20, 28. It's a verse that, that I cherish. And the punchline of that verse says, In him we live and move and have our being. In him. Not in us, not in our resources, not in the stuff that we set aside. Again, nothing wrong with planning. But just submit all of those plans to the Lord. Don't make any boastful assumptions. I think we have enough in our 401k to live comfortably. Maybe. Maybe not. I think we have enough to get our kids to college. Maybe. Maybe not. Just, just be careful about the planning and submit it to the Lord. Secondly, don't misuse your, your resources. Be fair and honest in all of your financial matters. I remember not too long ago I paid uh, cash for something, which is unheard of in these days, and the kid on the cash register gave me the wrong amount of change back. So I said to the kid, no, no th this is wrong. She assumed that I was complaining I didn't get enough back. She gave me $10 too much. I was trying to get her to see it. As the conversation went on, the more frustrated she got. She kept thinking I was trying to tell her, you screwed up, give me my, my money. She said, well, let me get the, let me get the manager. I said, sweetheart, stop. This is in your favor. You gave me too much money. This is your money. And I put the $10 down and I walked away. That girl, the look on her face was like, what happened? What, what, what just happened? You and I need to be fair and honest in all of our... We don't, we don't cheat on our taxes. We don't. It's not because we don't want to get caught. It's because we don't want to do that. We don't want to rip someone off just for our own pleasure. Learn to be a generous giver, a real generous giver. Uh, Acts 20 says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it is. In the few little ways that I've had that experience in my life, I am telling you, it is a whole heck of a lot more fun to give it away than it is to amass it. It is. Look at Christmas. Are you focused on the present that's coming to you, or do you have the camera out and you want to capture your kid's face when they see their blank? Of course it's the latter. Give the first fruits of your life. Not the leftovers. God isn't supposed to be tipped. It's 
all his anyway. He's letting us have 90% of it. Let him have the first. Be a cheerful giver. Literally, it means make somebody laugh. Be a hilarious giver. That's what that verse means. Laugh about it. <laughs> you can't do that if you got your hand gripped around it. Give regularly, regularly, through your church, through mission agencies, through missionaries, through people in ministry, through organizations that are good, doing good things, to people that are trying to make it. And don't care who gets the credit. Matthew says nobody's supposed to know anyway. When I looked at that stack of, of people that were paying for camp, I said, any of them want the families to know that they're... She said, are you kidding me? They'd kill me if I let out one, one word. Don't, don't, don't care who gives the credit. Just be that kind of a person and having those kinds of resources. By the way, if you're interested in this topic, may I recommend two books by Randy Alcorn? One of them is called The Treasure Principle, and the other one is called Giving is the Good Life. I recommend both of those. I highly recommend Randy anyway, but those are two good books. The Treasure Principle and Giving is the Good Life by Randy Alcorn. Third point I want to make under our So White section is be very careful to understand that you and I don't actually own any of our stuff. It all belongs to the Lord. I want you to look at this verse, 1 Chronicles. Go in the Old Testament. I know I'm going just a little bit over, but it's worth it. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. If we get this settled in our minds, the, the warning light doesn't have to be as, as vibrant. Who owns all this stuff anyway? 1 Chronicles chapter 24, excuse, 29, verse 24. He says, all the officers and warriors, and as well all the kings, whoops, that's great, that's not the verse, so I wonder if it's 2 Chronicles. Actually, I had two people check these notes. 29, 14, is that it? Nope, so there's a goober. Well, I, I know Psalm 24 uh, also covers the same thought, so look at Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse number 1. Psalm 24, verse number 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Uh, the, the earth is the Lord's. Everything in it belongs to him. It's not our stuff. If we get to thinking it's our stuff, if we get to thinking, oh, that the those saving to work so hard to get those savings. Yeah, I'm sure you did. But where did you get the health to do that? Where did the opportunity to, to work there come from? Where did the connections or the networking or the challenges or the whatever, they all came from the Lord. The stuff we have financially and otherwise all belongs to him. So bottom line, time and money are resources. And we need to use them, not let them use us. We need to invest them. We need to to see that they're useful for the glory of God. So this is a great topic to have with your spouse or, or, or a good friend. Sit down and say, hey, are the resources that God has given us, whether that's money itself or cars or, or opportunities or some of the toys that we have or homes we live in or, or chances and, and, and things that, that come about in our lives, are we, are we investing all those resources? Is our home open? 
or does it have to be perfect before we have hospitality? Is, is, is our ear, are our ears attuned to needs? Do we listen and hear? Oh, that, that, that faintive little cry that came from that one person. Oh, I think they have a need. Um, or, or, or there are some other things. Uh, did you find the verse? 29.12. Read it out. Well, I'll read it. I got the microphone. First uh, Chronicles 29.12. Okay, hold on one sec. Appreciate that. 29, verse number 12. Yeah, 29, 12. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to, uh, to all. Now, our Lord, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. And that's a great place to stop. We, gl we glorify him for the resources we have. Don't avoid the or ignore the warning lights having to do with time or money. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture. James is continuing to be incredibly practical in our lives. And this is a message we all need to take to heart. Let the Holy Spirit in each of our individual lives take the spotlight out and start going around in the darker corners of our heart and point out where we too need to be good stewards as it relates to time and money. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for coming, guys. It would have been no fun without you. I am grateful.